0: From the heart of the Midwest in Bloomington, Indiana, welcome to One More Cold Call, an Indiana University Maurer School of Law alumni podcast. Each week, over a casual cup of coffee, Dean Parrish meets with accomplished alumni from around the world and from all walks of life. Over a season of episodes, we hear from law school alumni who have unique stories to tell about the unfolding of their professional lives and the lessons they've learned along the way.
1: We start each podcast off with a little bit of IU Maurer Law School trivia and history. Did you know that the Maurer School of Law is home to the Center for Constitutional Democracy? One of the only centers of its kind in the world. The center does active constitutional design consulting, working in post-conflict areas, bringing together reform leaders in countries struggling for constitutional democracy. It's just an amazing program. The late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg once served on the advisory board for the center. And our next guest on the podcast is the advisory board's current chair. Now you know. Today I get to speak with Clarence Nardi-Riddle. Clarence serves as counsel for with Casowitz, Benson & Torres, where she's chair of the firm's Government Affairs and Strategic Counsel Practice Group. She's had simply an amazing career. She has served as former United States Senate Chief of Staff to Senator Joseph Lieberman, was the first woman and youngest state attorney general of Connecticut. In fact, she is the only woman to have served as, served as Connecticut's AG. Clarence's experience is extremely broad, and I can't capture her full career here, but she served as a judge for the Connecticut Superior Court, Connecticut's highest trial court of general jurisdiction. She served as special counsel to Senator Lieberman, as well as his deputy and counsel when he was attorney general of Connecticut. Prior to becoming his chief of staff, she was senior vice president and general counsel of the National Multi-Housing Council. She served as deputy corporation counsel for the city of New Haven, Connecticut. She is the active co founder, too, of No Labels, a bipartisan organization of Republicans, Democrats, and independents whose mission is to move America from the old politics of point scoring towards a new politics of problem solving. Clarine has received many well deserved accolades over her career. To list just a few, she was named a government relations trailblazer by the National Law Journal in recognition of her path baking career in government affairs and public service. The Connecticut Office of the Attorney General established the Clarence Nardi Riddle Award for Outstanding Leadership, which recognized an employee of the Connecticut Office of the Attorney General who has demonstrated the highest ideals of leadership, including professional integrity, diplomacy, and superior strategic decision-making skills. Clarence was awarded a 2020 Women Influence and Power in Law Award for Lifetime Achievement by Corporate Counsel. She's had so many other awards, and perhaps most importantly, she is an inductee to our Academy of Law Alumni Fellows, the highest honor we can bestow upon a graduate. Clorin, it's so gra- good to have you on One More Cold Call, our alumni podcast. Uh, you know, I usually have a cup of coffee when I'm doing an interview, and I've got my, uh, I've got my uh, iced latte this morning. It's a, frankly, it's a really nice morning here in Bloomington. Uh, how are things in D.C.? What are you drinking?
2: Well, I have my cup of warm coffee. It's uh, it's in the 60s here, and it's a little overcast, but they're still saying it's not supposed to rain. So, um, you know, it's it's a nice day. It's a nice day. It's, it's it's definitely a fall day, you know. Yeah.
1: Well, I have to say, fall days in, in Bloomington and DC can't really be beat, and and right. this time in October, I think this is this is brilliant. Right. Well, Clarence, I wanted to start off by asking you about No Labels. You are co-founder of that organization. What is No Labels? Uh, what are its goals, and, and how are you involved with it?
2: Well, No Labels is a um, C- uh, 501c4 organization, and in 2010, a woman by the name of Nancy Jacobson um, asked me if I would work with her uh, to think about how we could break the gridlock in Washington, DC. And we explored a number of a number of options like um, redistricting, um, um, you know, campaign finance. But what we kept coming back to was that we're not, the Congress now is not problem solving like it needs to across the aisle. You know, our mantra is fix, not fight, work together to solve the many problems of the country. And so, gradually from 2010 until now, we have step by step approached how do we make government work again? How do we make Congress work again? How do we make the presidency work again? And it's, you know, we've noticed that unfortunately there's been a trend to where it used to be the chairman were considered, you know, the top dogs of the committees, and that they really ruled the, ruled the roost, ways and means ruled the roost or finance ruled the roost. But really in the past many years, the, the what's called the big four, the Senate leadership in both the Senate and the House, uh, really pulled have been pulling legislation together many times without the advice of committees or involvement of the key committees involved. So what No Labels is trying to do is to be a force for good to get to that place where, we, where both sides work to solve the problems of the country and, and get them done, really. We've, we do see that many times when legislation is passed by just one party And we saw that with the affordable care act and we saw that with the 2017 tax tax cuts uh that then there's division and uh distrust and there's we keep going back to those pieces of legislation because they weren't worked through in a bipartisan way so uh, i could go on and on about all the different things that we're doing at no labels but we did spur the creation of a problem solver caucus in the House. It was, we spurred it, but it's now a caucus in the House under House rules, 58 members set up like Noah's Ark, one Republican, one Democrat. If you want to join, you got to bring somebody of the other party. And they have really gone to work on all the different problems uh, facing the country and were very involved this year in last December in particular with the CARES Act bill that got through. Um, and they've been very instrumental with the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is now a hot potato uh, to be passed.
1: I was going to say you got a big challenge, but uh, bipartisanship has never been easy, and and uh, seems like we're even further apart these days than we we ever were before in some ways.
2: I'm unfortunately of the same mind. Um, there's, um, I think, online media, social media, the the quick back and forth, the fight in the media, on television, keeps the the polarization front and center and it doesn't get the people in the room together to, to, to really solve these problems. And we know it's hard, but we also know that if it's done that way, we can usually move on to the next problem that really needs to be solved, if it can be solved in a bipartisan way. We're so excited about the bipartisan infrastructure bill. You know, 19 Republicans signed on to it in the, in the um, Senate. We have lots of support in the House, but now it's gotten linked to the reconciliation bill and that's a problem. So, you know, we, I don't know why we can't take that win and get jobs going and infrastructure uh, implemented, broadband, the highways, ports, um, all kinds of programs that are a part of that in bipartisan infrastructure bill.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting to say that I'm having dinner this evening with Lee Hamilton as part of a 9/11 uh, event, uh, sort of reflective event. And um, I already remember this was a few years ago, but he and Dick Luger talking about sort of the kind of the golden age of bipartisanship, at least in Indiana. And it uh, uh, he, he certainly, I think, laments how things have changed. And it's uh, right. Um, it sounds like we're, you're doing amazing work there.
2: Thank you. We're very um, we're, we're we're very determined to try every avenue to make this work and um, you know there's some that want third parties more involved and there's others that have other proposed fixes but ultimately you got to get people in the same room focusing on solving we have so many problems in this country that need to be addressed and his congressman hamilton was a wonderful example the 9-11 commission was a wonderful example i wrote a op-ed recently about the January 6th commission urging it to be set up like the 9-11 commission because we really do need an independent look at that. Uh, Hopefully this commission will do some good work but there's nothing like the work that he did um, with uh, Governor Keene together in that leadership that he did to to really inform the country about what happened with 9-11.
1: And we're very fortunate to have him here on campus. You know, you've been involved with government for a very long time, and I, I, sort of want to turn back the clock. We're we're extremely proud that you're one of the first that you're one of our graduates, and and uh, that you were the first woman to serve as the State Attorney General of Connecticut. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, the Connecticut Office uh, of the Attorney General has now established the nardi Riddle Award for outstanding leadership, which is which is a tremendous honor. Uh, can you tell our listeners about that experience? Uh, when you started law school did you imagine that you were going to be the Connecticut AG?
2: Oh never in my wildest dreams did I imagine I would be the Connecticut Attorney General when I went to law school it was post or it was during the Vietnam War and after the Vietnam War and or in Cambodia and I was very much involved in women's rights issues and and i I wanted to go to law school actually to learn b- more about how the world worked because I was hoping to be involved in public uh, uh, service in public administration. And I thought that a legal background would be such a wonderful background to have. Believe it or not, back then, the only law program on television was Perry Mason. And as you know, he always solved it at the end of the 30 minute show. (laughs) And I never thought of myself as Perry Mason, but uh, long story short, uh, I, you know, the Attorney General's offices across the country are phenomenal offices to work in. You get to be both an advocate for the state, you get to be an advocate for people who uh, you're entrusted with serving. You get to be a judge in a way with the state agencies because they come to you for opinions about what they can do and what they can't do. And if you see a problem in the law, if you see a change that needs to be made in the state law, you can go and advocate for it before your General Assembly. And of course, as many of the listeners know, AGs are joining in multi-state litigation all across the country and have been doing that for a long time. They weren't doing it as much when I was Attorney General, but we did We did work together on consumer protection matters, antitrust matters together, and that was great. And uh, in my time as attorney general, we did our, uh, change in a way from just defending what the state did to also being proactive for, for the citizen three. And we, we were called people's the people's lawyer at that time. Such a great job. I really urge law students to really think about public service and, and in particular, the state AG office so much important work, interesting work child abuse, uh, insurance tax, consumer protection, antitrust, constitutional issues I mean everything under the sun comes in that office
1: yeah I have to say even even as law students we're really fortunate that they have the opportunity to work with at least the Indiana AG's office and as you say those are true tremendous experience to see such a wide range of law practice uh, even over a summer uh, that's yeah. great advice that's great advice yeah. yeah. Karen uh, you, you you you've had this long relationship with former senator Joseph Lieberman and and you've held a lot of roles uh while he was senator can you describe some of your most memorable experiences there and and uh, and you working with him
2: you know we go back to when i moved from indiana to connecticut i first met him in 1978 and started working with him as his special counsel in 79 and it's so funny because i've been involved throughout my career, most of the time with him in some way, shape, or form, maybe not for eight years or nine, but the rest of it. And I was on the call the other day with Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman, who's the president of Yeshiva University, who I who I represent. And we were on the phone with Senator Lieberman. And Rabbi Berman said, you know, Senator, you always elevate every conversation that we have. And I said, "Dr. Berman, I said you won't believe this, but that was my very first impression when I met Senator Lieberman for my first time. That any conversation we had was elevated. It wasn't. It wasn't what I always, the kind of conversation I had always had in government. And I said that, you know, uh, was was really the." The 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 core of what kept me with him as a mentor and as a a person in public service. He he he's he's definitely a policy wonk, and he's definitely somebody that really loves to solve the problems uh, in a variety of different set- set- settings. And obviously, I was involved with the recount in two thousand. I was involved in that election. I was involved with him when he was when he supported John McCain and I was at the, that year I was at the Republican convention in 2000, I was at the Democratic convention. And, and obviously we worked on the 9-11 commission recommendations and the intelligence reform regulations. And sadly, we had hoped to fix some of the cybersecurity issues before he left the Senate, but that didn't happen. But, and also he was involved in climate change for so many years. And I was involved with some of those at the end. And one of our happiest moments was the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell um, at the Defense Department that was extremely happy to make happen. Um, And so, you know, I could just, there's just so many stories, but the real story that comes through is his character and his leadership as a public servant and how he did put the public uh, uh, and serving the country Ahead head of a head of party. I mean, you know, people can differ about how to approach problems and, um, but he, and he always valued that. And so all I can say is it's wonderful to work with a wonderful public servant who really um, cares about uh, the problems that we need to address.
1: You know, as you're describing that I'm struck by how much law is involved in all those big policy decisions and it um, right. It you. It sounds like you've been using your law degree fully
2: throughout all that advising and career. Oh my gosh, yes! And of course, you have to comply with the campaign finance laws, and you have to comply with the lobbying disclosure act laws, and you have to comply with all these other kind of uh, f- federal election commission laws. And so, you become a. You really have to be a generalist, and yet you have to really dig down deep in the weeds whenever you're working on a particular issue or project. So he's just a wonderful person and the country's been very blessed to have his leadership in public service. As he was state Senate majority leader in Connecticut and he was attorney general of Connecticut and then the US Senator for 24 years for Connecticut.
1: Well, I think he's been very fortunate to have an advisor like you. I think, uh, <laughs> I think some of these top people, it's, it's the people underneath them and beside them and supporting them that make some of the differences over the long period of time. You know, I want to go back at the start. You graduated in 1974. And, and that, that must've been a different time in Bloomington. And I'd love to talk to you about whether you have strong memories of Bloomington in law school that particularly stick out to you. And and also what was it like to graduate and, and be a law student and, and start law practice in 1974? It, uh, uh, graduating as a woman in the 1970s ha- has got to be different than it is uh, graduating today. I'd, I'd love to t- for you to talk a little bit about that.
2: Yes, well, thanks. I have so many fond memories of IU. As you know, I was an undergraduate mathematics major, so I was blessed to be on the campus for four years before I was at the law school. So I got to take advantage of the, the beautiful Woodland campus and all the all that's IU offers the little 500 and the and all the different things at the auditorium that we used to all all do IU sing and all the other things and and so I have just wonderful memories of the memorial union and the law school and uh you know it was an interesting time I remember in law school we were drafting the first we helped draft the first title IX program for Indiana University so you know, that really does take us back. And we were, we were probably the largest group of women in the law at that time in 74. I think we had maybe 20 <laughs> in the class. And that was a lot. And, um, you know, before us, it was like three, four, five, maybe in the classes ahead of us. And, and it was an interesting class, because there was a lot of women that had just come from undergrad. And then there were a number of women who had taken breaks in their careers and then they'd come back to law school after that. So they they were a little older uh, than those of us just out of undergrad. And um, I was very involved in the women's caucus uh, at the law school. Of course, we created one um, because we wanted to get together and talk about what we were all experiencing. And yes, there were faculty that still told uh, locker room jokes on uh, in classes and we didn't like it and we told them so and we would hiss if that happened and um you know uh we ended up having a meeting with the faculty once about involving more uh students in general in the committees of the law school and and uh, some of the things that some of the women were were facing in the classes and uh so during the, the uh, law school experience, that was interesting. And then when we started applying for positions, we, we learned that you know, uh, notwithstanding that we thought we were definitely treated with in meritoriously. In other words, things were based on merit. You worked hard, you got an A in a class. You, you, know, you, 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 you know, we all through school, we had succeeded. And then, then we start interviewing for jobs. And we find out we're asked questions like, are you planning to have children? Do you you take contraceptives? Boopity boop. -boop. Are you willing to be in trusts and estates? Do you really want to be a litigator? You know, you get asked, you got asked all those questions back then because the EEOC really hadn't issued guidelines on many of these things back then. They had kind of worked up to doing it, but they hadn't really formulated in regulations. And you're sitting there thinking, yes, I take contraceptives. Yes, I'm planning to have children, but I'm a serious career person too. And I want to have that. So what what a number of us found out was that public service at that time was more open uh, to women and didn't ask those questions and didn't expect us to stay for five, six, or seven years or more and give our whole life to a law firm. And so many of us then went into public service and my first job was working for the Indiana State Legislature, Legislative Services Agency, which is the agency that drafted legislation for both Democrats and Republicans. A Republican could give me a, a bill proposal, in one year and I'd have to keep it confidential and a Democrat could come along and ask for the same thing. And I'd keep that confidential. And if they both got filed, then they both would see that they were both interested in that same, same bill. But long story short, um, all the women that were in our class found positions, but it, they had some hurdles to jump over to get there.
1: It's it's great to hear how you've been working across the aisle, even from the very start of your career. Uh, you, know, when you yep. look at the law school history, you know in some ways we were a trailblazer back in the 1800s. You know, our first woman graduate in 1892. There was only, I think I think I read only eight public universities that accepted women at the time, and then right. a long period of time to see major change. And as you say, it's not until the 1970s that we start seeing an increase in the number of women to you know critical mass. Uh, you know, these days we're where nationally, it's more fifty more than fifty percent women going to law school right now, and uh, um, you know we're proud. I, I think we're the only law school in the country that has partnerships with all the women's colleges and um, scholarship programs. Um, but uh, but what a big difference between the nineteen
2: seventies. Right, and you know when I was attorney general, I was only one of two women attorneys general at the time, Mary Sue Terry here in Virginia, and then when I argued before the Supreme Court, I understand that I'm the first female attorney general to argue before the Supreme Court. So that's in 89. So not that I was the first woman, right? There had been women that had argued, not very many, but women had argued, but the state AG uh, argument. So it's a-
1: Well, am I correct in understanding that you're the only woman uh, that has been the attorney general of Connecticut? Uh, Still today, yeah. Yes,
2: yes, yes. it's, yeah dick dick Blumenthal was after me and Senator Blumenthal and he he served for many terms as a state attorney general and then now William Tong
1: well, it's uh it's 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 amazing how things have changed since the 1970s and yet still how there's still quite a long way to go in many areas
2: yeah um, we have a women's AGs group and it started out at a small table and now we've got a Somewhat bigger table, but of, of former's and current a- women AGs which is wonderful. But we still have some states where there hasn't been a woman AG, and um, and clearly not two. <laughs> so we've still got some we've got some roads to cover yet.
1: <laughs> well, you know that that leads to my sort of my next question. You've been recognized as a trailblazer uh, as Woman of the Year, and and last year you were recognized with a Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, uh, you know, you've done great things. What, what advice do you have for young women starting a career in law? And and uh, I guess, um, yeah, if you were if you were starting all off uh, over again, what, what what advice would you give uh, the young lawyers of today?
2: You know, I'm on the women initiatives committee at the law firm, and it's interesting to hear the younger women what their challenges are, and they're not. Um, too unsimilar from the standpoint of, of managing family and work that many of us faced many years ago. I think there. Uh, I think a big part of it now is mentorships, and making certain that they hook up with mentors that will help them advance and give them experiences and help them with being second chair in a case or taking a leadership role in the case. I know Mm -hmm. our law firm is very committed to the women uh, they've brought on to to help make all of that happen. But um, I guess, I mean, I think what I will say to all all attorneys and, and women too, that you wanna pursue those things that interest you. And public service, is a wonderful career and you get to really can feel very proud of the of the work you do. But also uh, litigation in in the private practice is is extremely interesting. And um, I've enjoyed watching some of our young litigators take over cases and just take those depositions and get get the case all prepared. And, and be successful, work over, overnight and, um, and just get those TROs and other things going. And so I just think it's really good. F- I think what's happening now, it's a little bit different than when I was graduating and why I got the questions that I a- was asked back then is that many times if you went to a law firm, that was your job for your life. And nowadays, I think there's more uh, chapters in people's legal career where they may go into public service for a while, then they may go into private practice for a while. They may go in business for a while, then they may go to corporate counsel for a while. So people uh, transition through different opportunities in the law, which is so wonderful about the law. The law lets you do that in so many different ways, um, and um, and I think so. I guess what I'm really saying is follow your heart, follow your passion, um, and you know those opportunities can grow into other opportunities. Like I say, we've had some litigators; they turn go into being general counsel for businesses, then they become the COO or the CEO, and um, and that's great. I was blessed with being its local government, state government, federal government, legislative, executive, and judicial. So I got to see public service from all these different tangents, which I think helps inform my my work now even more.
1: Yeah, well, you you were you've been remarkable in the number of different uh, ways you've been able to view the law. But 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 you're absolutely right. They 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 did a survey a few years ago and. Uh, um, a very large survey nationwide and mobility was the one thing that people value most in law, um, and at, at least in modern day. And as you say that old model that you would go to one firm and stay for 40 years. Now it's very much reinventing yourself every few years and, and, uh, and unlike other professions I think you're right law allows you to do that in a way that's that's actually liberating in some ways to know that yes. you can have different careers. Yeah. Right.
2: And you can be a law school dean too.
1: Yes. <laughs> Who, who would have thought for myself? Who would have
2: thunk, huh? Yeah, exactly,
1: exactly. <laughs> well, no, I've been very fortunate myself to to have had the same sort of uh, been blessed to be in uh, in different places at different times. What are you working on now, Lauren? What 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 sort of work are you sort of currently focused on?
2: Well, as you know, I head up the government affairs and strategic Council practice. So that means that I'm working with Congress and the legislative branch and the and the executive branch for clients. I always tell my my partners in New York that are um, litigators. Your venue is the courts. Mine is Congress and the and the executive branch. And they take different approaches. And um, my two of my really exciting clients right now, um, one is Biz to Credit, which is a fintech. And during the pandemic, and while we're still in it, but during the pandemic, when the Uh, payroll protection program. The PPP program was in place uh, to help small businesses. Biz2Credit applied to be an on-tech fintech lender during the pandemic and really helped so many. And I helped them become a a lender. I mean, we had to do a huge, uh, it was a huge undertaking to get that, that done because they had their traditional lenders. And, um, the fintechs ended up helping so many small businesses stay afloat during the pandemic, and, and I was just I'm just so proud to work with them because they they took it all so so seriously to help the small businesses, and um, they could do everything online, so they were remote and um, able to you know without with social distancing and all that stuff to help people get their loans. And the second one is that I'm working with a uh, with an, uh, power company called Talon Energy, and uh, they have a nuclear power plant, Susquehanna, in Pennsylvania, and uh, other 19 locations. They have a variety of uh, power uh, power companies, and they have gone on. They have taken on. Uh, They're wanting to be a clean energy. Uh, providers so they are very aggressively going in the clean energy direction and they've got a their their mantra is to be a force for good there and uh, so um, it's really been it's a it's an exciting group to work with they're phasing out of coal but they're doing it in a way that they're trying to support the community that's there so they're moving from coal to natural gas and then through attrition then they'll go to renewables but they're they're trying to support the communities they've been in in this process the the property tax base the jobs and um and it's just exciting to be working with a company that's aggressively and they're setting goals that they know that they themselves could see are met or not they're not setting goals so far out that okay they they're not there anymore so um so it's it's just very exciting because um, to be a part of a company that's trying to trying to make make those things happen for our society, and they're finding out that the market is encouraging them. They're not on the rate base, so if they make a mistake, it's their bottom line that gets affected. The rate payers don't pay it because they're an independent power producer. But um, what's really exciting is that they're uh, the market. Is seem, it seems to be encouraging them. And they've got an ESG uh, program um, that they have implemented too. So um, anyway, I'm very, very proud to be working with this company too.
1: Sounds like you're continuing to do fabulous things. Lauren, I wish we had more time because uh, we could go on for a, for a long time. We keep these podcasts fairly short, but thank you for all you do for the law school. You've been a friend of the school for such a long time. And And great to be able to spend uh, a few minutes with you this morning talking about what's been really a remarkable career. Um, Thanks for joining One More Cold Call this morning.
2: Thank you, Dean. It's been a pleasure.
1: Well, thank you.
0: And thanks to our listeners for joining us, too. Don't forget to follow us on social media at both at Austin Parish and at IU Maurer Law on Twitter and Facebook. And we hope you make plans to come back to Bloomington soon. Each year, over a 1,000 alumni come back to campus, judging moot court or mock trial, serving as mentors, or helping our students in other ways. We hope you will, too. And when you do, please reach out. Until the next time, this is One More Cold Call, an IUMauer School of Law alumni podcast.